Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the second series of ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today's podcast is focusing on the circular economy, a concept that we should strive to live in a world where there is no waste or pollution, where we keep products and materials in use rather than the traditional model of manufacture, use, dispose. Something that would not only reduce the environmental impact of our infrastructure, but could also reduce costs. Joining me today to discuss the subject are two men who are at the forefront of embedding the circular economy principles into infrastructure design and operation. Firstly, from Heathrow Airport, Environmental Assessment Manager Mark Edwards. Mark is a chartered mechanical engineer and environmentalist specialising in resource efficiency and the circular economy in infrastructure. At Heathrow, Mark is currently implementing a resource-efficient, low-carbon approach into the expansion of the airport, which includes exploring opportunities to apply the circular economy in the design, construction and operation of the scheme. Joining Mark is ACOM's UK and Ireland Head of Sustainable Development, Robert Spencer. In his role, Robert works with a variety of national and global organisations actively tackling climate breakdown and sustainable development challenges. In 2013, he convened and now chairs the UK's first infrastructure circular economy forum, the Major Infrastructure Resources Optimization Group, or MIROG for short, which I might add Mark is also a member. Welcome, gentlemen. Robert, seeing as you're on home turf, I'll start with you. Circular economy, what exactly are we talking about? Did my pithy introduction do it any justice? I'm sure that you can add a lot more. Uh, I think I think you did do it justice, James, specifically when you talked about the elimination of the concept of waste. That is central to the circular economy approach. But the other thing that I would add, and this is really important for us in the infrastructure and the construction and built environment world, is... Having in mind when we're designing our infrastructure assets, our infrastructure projects, what will happen with the various components and assets that we're developing when they reach the end of their life? How do we consider the next life? So how do we consider whether those, that component of a bridge or a bit of airport runway, what are the constituents of that? What are the materials and products that have gone in there? And how can they be retrieved? from their current use and have their value retained so that they have another application in their next life. So I think this is this is a key concept to take on board. So you eliminate waste by considering what happens to that particular component or product at the end of its current use life and how do you make use of it and reintegrate it into the economy for use again in a further application. And the key thing here is that that eliminates the drawdown on virgin materials, the virgin materials that we're having to mine and excavate from the earth in order to make the things that we use in our everyday infrastructure delivery. Mark, we were talking briefly before we started recording about the different approaches between looking at products and looking at the built environment. 
that's important to differentiate what we're looking at there, isn't it? Uh, I think so, yes. Because a circular economy in the built environment is just more complicated. So for products, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, really. Make things that are from you know natural materials or that can be recycled, that are modular, can be taken apart, repaired, all that sort of stuff. So all of those things all apply to the built environment. But a built asset is fundamentally different because a building or a, you know, an asset piece of railway, some electricity infrastructure, are made up of thousands of different products, all of which have different life cycles. And so actually trying to work out how you deal with all that in the built environment is difficult. So for example, there's a concept of building in layers. So you know, if I want to do some maintenance, I should be able to get access to the systems that I want to maintain without damaging other products that are in the way. So, you know, for, for example, trying to go through um, plasterboard. So, you know, if I've got an easy access, then I can get into the stuff behind it without causing any damage and that's causing any waste and, and materials. So the circular economy in the built environment is just that kind of next level of complexity which just makes it entirely very difficult. Because also, not only that, you've also got an entirely different supply chain to deal with. Whereas, you know, with a phone or a table, basically you've got a manufacturer of tables uh, and that's it. But, you know, in a built environment, in a built asset, you're going to have brick manufacturers, timber manufacturers, steel manufacturers, cement manufacturers, yada, 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 the list all goes on. Presumably, the circular economy has to start, you know, when we're thinking about how we're going to implement, it's right at the design stage. To ensure that, as you say, when you want to access certain elements of a building, that you can do that with yeah. in the most efficient way. I think so. I mean, I think the, the, the best way to address this is when you're thinking about a specific building or a specific bit of infrastructure asset, what do we do with this? You, it might be already too late because the constraints of where it's situated and how it's been bolted together and where it, has, as, as Mark was saying, where it sits within the layers of other components and aspects that have been built around it, that actually can determine its fate. It may be just too difficult to get it out, so you just have to get a wrecking ball and knock the whole thing down and then try and gather up the pieces. And that's where you end up with things like you know, recycled aggregates, you've, you've downgraded the original materials and so you've lost value. And so I think what the circular economy needs is organisations that are involved in delivering infrastructure and delivering the built environment really need to take a step back and actually get a, a circular economy strategy in their heads, in their sort of route map for how they're going to deliver their services, develop a bit of a roadmap, think about what products and components and assets they're going to be delivering to serve their purpose and to serve the purpose of the communities that they're working for. And then think about you know, how do we set these in place. As Mark was saying, building in layers is, is one aspect of that. And it is more complex for infrastructure because infrastructure is so long-lived. You know, longevity is one of the key factors that differentiates infrastructure from the, the more straightforward product-specific circular economy approach. Even something as complex as a car with all its moving parts, albeit electric vehicles have a lot less moving parts than uh, traditional internal combustion engine vehicles. But a car will have typically a life cycle you know, with personal contract plans of three to four or five years, maybe at the most. And then it goes back, and it might end up back at the manufacturer, but it might not. And even there, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to reclaim all the valuable materials that might be in that car or might be in your mobile phone or might be in your printer cartridge or whatever other everyday office item it is that you're using. But infrastructure is built up, as we said, from many of those components. So when you're mapping out 
the circular economy approach for infrastructure, then you need to think about all these other things that allow you to then get access to that product when it needs to be maintained or improved or refurbished or pulled out and replaced with something that's been improved, that's better. And so you need you need a few things that enable that. And this is where the digital revolution and, and the availability of more data on what sits behind our infrastructure assets, what are all those bits of metal and steel and and timber and, and concrete, how much is it, how old is it, how, how much wear has it endured? The data that we're starting to get from our infrastructure assets through using things like building information modelling and, and tagging is actually helping us deliver on our sort of circular economy principles because it allows you to work out, you know, that thing's got 10 years to go, that, that overhead signalling box has got 10 years' life in it, some of the electrical components in there might fail in eight years, so we need to pull them out, repair them, push them back in, or, or replace them with something better. Whereas the the, the backbone, the structure of the build, this concrete structure of the building, or the sub base of the road, it's not going to change that much. The footprint of that is not going to change that much. But it's the being able to understand where things are, what their value is, what they're made of, and what could they be replaced with. That's where data in the digital revolution is actually really helping us deliver on the circular economy promise in the built environment context. Well, can I pick up yeah, on of course. I think mm. there's two points in particular that you just made that are really important. One is the value piece, mm. and that's absolutely crucial. So for me, you could describe the circular economy as maintaining materials, products, components and assets at their highest value for as long as possible. Mm. For me, that is the definition of the circular economy. Mm. So to use a non-built environment example, Mm. use a table as a table for as long as it can be used as a table. Mm. And then only then, right, let me disassemble it. Right, I've now got a piece of wood that's four by four. Okay, where can I use that piece of wood as a four by four? Mm. And then you go down, and then if you can use that, great, and then go into recycling. And hopefully, you know, you, so you keep things at their highest value for as long as possible. Mm. And that's why I think it's really important to, to make also make the distinction between buildings and infrastructure. So two quite very different strategies I think we need, because buildings... There is, I think it's something like 80 to 90% of the building stock that we need in the UK for until 2050 or something like that, we've already got. So how can you embed circular principles into something that's already standing? So that's one particular challenge. Obviously, it's very different retrofit versus new build. And then with infrastructure, with infrastructure, it's ever so slightly easier because essentially you could take away the end of life issue because essentially infrastructure is built to serve societal need. People want water, people want to be able to travel, people want energy. So those generally infrastructure systems are put in place to serve that need. And pretty much they're there. Once they're there, they're there. You know, we're still using the Victorian tube network and the sewers networks. I'm pretty sure these guys, no idea what they thought about the future, but I think they'd be quite surprised that we're still using their infrastructure now. So in some ways that makes the infrastructure question a bit easier because essentially it then becomes about maintenance, refurbishment and upgrade. And you can kind of take away that end of life question. So is recycling a dirty word? (laughs) No, no. Because I, I must confess, that before doing my research this podcast, I would have probably said, oh, recycling is all... Well, it's part of it, I suppose. Yeah, but absolutely, yes, that's the crucial bit. It is part of it. Yeah. But crucially, circular economy and recycling are not synonyms. Mm. So if an organisation comes out and said, oh, we've cracked the circular economy, look at our recycling rate, it's gone up to 90%. Well, that, quite frankly, is greenwash. They haven't solved the circular economy. I refute... Any organisation that on their own says that, oh, we've done the circular economy, I 
key tenet to the paradigm shift that we need to embed a circular economy is collaboration along the whole supply chain. So recycling is not a dirty word at all. It's absolutely part of it. But if people are using it as a synonym, then I'd argue that that is not appropriate. So yeah, recycling is definitely part of it. The collaboration piece, surely it's a a mammoth task to get everybody organised, to get everyone to realise what's available and what's coming up and where it's needed, etc. I think it is, and there are are many different strategies. Just to finish off on the the point about Mm. the the recycling, though, I mean, there is what's called a a waste hierarchy where you have, um, you know, stuff going to landfill at the bottom and at the top, you know, you're reusing, effectively. You're you're just finding another use. You're not devaluing or taking value out of the material. So let's try and aim for the waste hierarchy. I think that's one way of aspiring to circular economy principles but you won't be at circular economy if you're only doing recycling you've got to eliminate that idea of discarding and something being downgraded doing something that it wasn't intended for in the first place so that's so i just build on that Mm. for me the definition of recycling requires some sort of um, processing of the material so chemical or mechanical Mm. so that's automatically you're downgrading it Mm. so reuse right you know so if we take let's take a built environment asset as an example so right, i've got a building it's got an escalator in it okay that building has reached its end of its life and it's going to be replaced demolished but there's still that escalator in it mm. well hang on how many years life has that escalator got in it oh well it was replaced 10 years ago it's got a 30-year life mm. right so does it actually make sense to take something which has 20 years of its life left and just to throw it away that seems to me to not really be the application of common sense. So what can we do? So can we find someone who needs a new escalator? And we can just take that escalator and put it into a different building. Okay, yes, there are complexities about how do you take it out and install it and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's not beyond the wit of man to be able to do that. It's just that it's, diff- it's a different model to what we've currently got now. That leads nicely into the collaboration point. Mm. So... Who knows that that high-value escalator with 20 years of life in it is still in that building, and who who could use it? Nobody knows it's there because the data points aren't there for the rest of the built environment, manufacturers, delivery, contractors, users, and so on. So this is one of the things that we've been trying to tackle at the Major Infrastructure Resource Optimization Group, is we've been bringing people together to collaborate, to think about ways in which these sorts of intelligent aspects of making the circular economy real in the built environment come to life. And so one of the things is, how do you make it part of procurement that when you're looking at perhaps refurbishing a building or uh, refurbishing a chunk of infrastructure, that actually you're guided by the client process to consider what is the value in the uh, existing infrastructure that you're going to be working on. And another way of looking at that is something called buildings as material banks. There's a project been done on this, I think, with some funding from the European Union, which is led by BRE. So they've been looking at buildings and they've been trying to determine how much material value is there in that building, whether it's the bricks, the mortar, the concrete, the escalators, the lifts, and trying to find out ways of understanding how you can assess that before you go in and do a major refurbishment or even demolish that building so that you then pull out and retain those bits of the 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 infrastructure the the asset the building fabric that are actually of use and could be reused rather than downgrade recycled become secondary aggregates end up in a you know a golf course or what have you which isn't the best value and so one of the ways that we can start to enable that is a we need the data that tells us that that high value escalator is sitting in that building that's about to be demolished but b 
we need a way of exchanging that. The data points need to come to life on someone's dashboard at their computer, you know, whether it's a contractor or a whoever it is, they can then say, okay, this is like a sort of electronic eBay, if you like, for the built environment. Oh, this this has come up. We need to get a, a more effective marketplace working for the high value items. And one way, of, another way that I wanted to talk about that is, is the concept of residual value. So if you've got something that's in the asset that's perhaps scheduled for demolition or, or you know, it's going to be torn down or what have you, if there's a, a way of assessing that, a so-called a pre-demolition audit or another way of uh, assessing what's there, and you have a sort of a, you know quick workshop, can even be you know half an hour with everyone around the table that's involved in that, pull out what those key aspects are that, that have got some lots of value still in, and then there's a good chance that, that that steel, metal, concrete, that asset or component will have another life or will have a better life than it would have done if it was just demolished with a wrecking ball, which is the fate of a lot of... Uh, I was hearing that you know at some of the large exhibitions, for example, at the end of the exhibition, a JCB comes in and just plows through, takes all the tile carpet, all the residual stalls and exhibition stands that haven't been taken down by, and, and just landfilled. I know that that doesn't happen too much in, in the UK anymore, thank goodness, but it's still happening a lot in our, some of our countries that we work in. So you know, that, that's shocking, you know, and there's, there's so much residual value and, and stuff tied up in there that if we had more organisations that have taken that first step to develop a circular economy strategy and then thought through how can they deliver on that through the services that they're offering, that would never happen because that concept of waste would have gone. That wouldn't be an option, just, you know, JCB throwing JCB through something and ending up being carted off as landfill. I mean, it's slightly off topic, but yeah. isn't it horrific that society has got to the state where actually putting a JCB through a exhibition centre is I'm going to assume a cheaper option mm. than actually dealing with all this stuff and reason that is shocking kind of how do we get to this point mm. and I think that's point that there hasn't been these connections being made about how much value is still in there and that's where I think you know to take a sort of slightly more philosophical view the circular economy is a way of reassessing how our economy works you know getting rid of some of the structural failures in our economy about the whole concept of waste and the whole concept of stuff being discarded because we don't need it anymore. And that's to do with what value is put on things. One one way that people are coming up with of trying to increase the way in which value is retained or thought of in infrastructure components and assets is attaching the the carbon value to it. Um, Because, of course, there's so much discussion and, and concern about carbon within the environment at the moment with the climate emergency going on. But also when it gets to embodied carbon... Can you use that as a proxy as well as cost to try to see where there's, there's still value in stuff and uh, come up with an alternative way of uh, reintegrating those components or assets or materials, whatever it is we're talking about, back into the system? But to come back to collaboration, so one of the key things that, that, that Myrog's been doing is, as I said, putting those different infrastructure organisations together to see if there are common approaches that can be taken to eliminate the concept of, of waste and where there is components and assets that could be, you know, have got some residual value in them and could be shared across different infrastructure projects. How do we identify those and develop mechanisms that allow the exchange to take place fruitfully. And that, that's what the topic of the latest uh, Myra White paper actually is, the case for a, a resource exchange mechanism that serves the purposes of the built environment and the construction industry more widely. It tries to capture some of the things that we've just been talking about in terms of identifying uh, high-value assets and components. What is their residual value? How do we find a market for them between our infrastructure operators and, and owners? 
to move into a world where we have no waste, we have no pollution, sounds it sounds incredible. And, but I, I wonder how realistic is it? How big is the challenge? Because surely not everybody's going to want a second-hand escalator or you know, there's, surely there's going to be some pushback. Yeah, well, ultimately it's going to come down to economics. So at some point, someone will dig the last kilogram of copper ore out of the earth and then we will have no more copper and you could apply that to any other material so what happened you then get into the economic model of supply and demand well if there's no supply what happens and, and you know so if demand's the same and you've got no supply what happens well it gets more expensive uh, you know that ultimately if we don't do something proactively i think that is seems to be the kind of you know the mechanism that come into play simple commercial factors that's a good example, as I understand it, that more copper is now existing in the wiring systems of our infrastructure and buildings than there is available in the, in the ground to extract. So then you, you're in the situation of actually mining, if you like, our existing infrastructure and urban fabric and infrastructure fabric for these minerals and metals that are going to be increasingly valuable. Because the other thing to keep in mind here is that we're moving from a fossil fuel economy to a materials economy where lithium-ion batteries and copper and everything that goes with power storage is going to be taking over having huge tankers and storage spaces for oil and gas. So the situation that Mark just described of, you know, we really need to be aware of keeping some of these vital minerals and materials available in the economy, knowing where every single, you know, valuable copper wire is and where every ounce of gold is embedded in our components, actually going to be vital because they have to be retrieved. We're not, make, we're not making any more gold, we're not making any more copper. So we've got to find it within our existing fabric. And the circular economy actually enables that process, that thought process of the circular economy enables us to think about that. But there's, there's also evidence of this. I'm sure people have been affected by delays on the, uh, trains caused by people stealing sections of signet cable. And why are they stealing it? Because it's a high-value material that they can then sell. So, you know, we're starting to see some, you know, uh, evidence of this. Yeah, I mean, I was about to ask, where are we seeing the circular economy in action already? And <laughs> you've just given me an example, but mm. where are we with this? Is this something that is, uh, we are hoping to, to bring in? Are we implementing it at the moment? Where are, where are we doing well? That's a very difficult question to answer. But you've got some good examples at Heathrow with some of the approaches that you're yeah, so I think expansion, I think. Yeah, it all comes down to context. Mm. So the construction industry is a project-based industry. It's not like a manufacturing plant, you know. So Dell, who are just manufacturing thousands of laptops after laptop after laptop, right, they can do things that will have an impact. So, so it might be kind of, you know, 2% on each laptop. If you add it all up together, bang, there you go. It just keeps churning out. You get the, this big change. Mm. Built environment and construction doesn't work like that. It's a project-based industry. So, that, so by definition, that means everything's unique. You've got loads of different supply chain issues. Just Even at tier one contractors, design is completely different. And then obviously you've got completely different clients. So how do you share things across projects? That, that is one thing that's very difficult. And, you know, the way that the supply chain is set up and the questions that are asked during the procurement process, do these preclude contractors or people in the supply chain bringing their good practice from other projects on board to your project. But that sounds all very negative, but there are things going on, but they fundamentally need a shift in attitude. So Interface have... I don't want to do Interface and Injustice by saying so, apologies if I get something wrong, but they basically have a kind of a... I think it's almost like a completely circular manufacturing process for carpet tiles. 
So the carpet tiles they produce are made from a limited number of materials, they're recyclable, they take back old carpet tiles to put back into their system, and they are a profitable company. So it is working, but that's just one organisation. And obviously, you know, I would assume they want to, you know, supply carpet tiles to the whole world, but, you know, that, how's that going to work? So there are isolated bits and pieces that are good examples, mm. but it just requires a kind of... Well, it's essentially, it's a paradigm shift, mm. really, to for everyone to engage and make this happen, because no one organisation can do it on its own. No, I think, Mark, you rightly identified that you know the construction industry does face a big challenge because it's responsible for so many emissions in the UK economy, but also it's responsible for a lot of waste in the UK economy as well. And I think that's because the construction industry is catching up with what's already happened in automotive and other sectors of the economy where they've they've gone for you know lean manufacturing, they've gone for highly organised automated product plants. And I think this is what's going to need to come down the line with how we generate the built environment. So and I know this is something that you know you're looking to explore at Heathrow as well, where you actually there's not actually much building in the future that goes on on the site, on the building site. So you actually have prefabricated modular components coming in which are designed for disassembly and will have you know the right tags and sensors RFID attached to them so that you know what's going in and so then 10-15 years later if that bit of kit needs to be refurbished you know what's coming out and you know what's in there so that's really enabling the circular economy so as I said before data is the best friend of the circular economy but so is the modular approach and the increasing way in which the construction industry is adopting off-site manufacturing because it eliminates a huge amount of waste on site because you're not having damage, transportation costs are usually better for off-site manufacturing, and so you've got emissions associated with that. And you're seeing this with ACOM as well. You know, we're, we're developing our, our own modular approach, which is starting to have some take-up within the built environment. And that's one of the things that we'll, we'll start to see more of, I think. And the other thing is, coming back to my earlier point about next life. So understanding when the next life of the uh, components will kick in. So I mean, I think a good example at, at Heathrow is is parking. So thinking, so doing a bit of future casting and thinking about you know how many parking lots are we putting in here when if the predictions are right about autonomous electric vehicles and more shared service vehicle movements for the last mile, in other words, getting to your last bit of the journey to your destination, that might might be an airport. You might not need all that parking stock. So although we need to build for current capacity, do we build in a way that actually it's adaptable and also it's modular so it can be taken down again when perhaps technologies move forward a little bit? So when we talk about adaptive, people often think about, oh, it must be something to do with climate change. And, and that may be the case. You might need to be adapting your infrastructure so that it can handle more heat and more extreme weather events but it also needs to be adaptive to new technology that's coming down the line and you know if we have a circular economy mindset we can be much better set up and prepared and sort of resilient to that. We're talking about going forward what what's the role with, with sort of central government in, in making this happen? Are they on board? Do they need a bit of a shove? I think obviously we uh, need to be um, you know, mindful that there's lots of politics going on at the moment, but certainly there's been a huge shift in the public mindset around this issue, largely through, you know, it has to be said, you know, the efforts of people like Sir David Attenborough, who've really brought the, the issues around single-use plastics and climate breakdown right into our living rooms because we're watching his programmes you know, on a nightly basis. So there's been a huge shift in terms of 
the culture of discarding. You know, you go to McDonald's and you, you use a straw and you cup and, and you bid to Costa and, and what have you, and it all ends up in a waste bin, you know, two minutes later. I think there's there's quite a sort of mind shift going on within society that they want to that the people want to see a shift going on there from the product manufacturers. So because the thing about circular economy is is we've got to make it easy for the consumers and the end users. The onus shouldn't be on choosing from five thousand different types of recycling bin and knowing exactly what you know the components of my crisp packet or my coffee cup are made of. Uh, you know that has to be made much easier. And, you know, in countries like some of the Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands, you know they've gone quite far in terms of determining. Okay, well, certain types of products will only be allowed to be made from certain types of plastics, and then we know how we can recycle them. So they go back straight back into the the supply chain, and there's no waste. Now, the government is looking at this. As I said, there's an environment bill coming forward. I believe DEFRA are considering a, a, a new waste strategy. And that will start to take on board some of these pressing elements, I think. But one of the areas that probably does need to be looked at is, is the waste legislation. Because if you're focusing on reuse as the principal way in which we start to deliver on the circular economy and moving away from recycling and downcycling and so on, then... We need to look at that issue with the waste legislation, which is about intention to discard. Because if ever at any point you intend to discard something, then it becomes waste. And that means it's much more difficult to then, there's a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork attached with uh, making that thing not waste anymore and getting it reused. So I think that, that probably does need to be addressed probably in the next political cycle, in the next parliament. But it's interesting because as soon as you start talking about policy, it's all about waste. Mm. So waste management is a part of the circular economy. Mm. But circular economy is about materials, and that is what I think the government is lacking. So don't forget, in the built environment, the job's done, mm. because they got rid of site waste management plan legislation, because the job was done. But as we've sort of said earlier, construction's responsible, I think it's about 60% of UK waste. Correct. And it's been at that level for years. Mm. So if there isn't an argument to say that government should probably do something, I don't know what there is. Mm. But it's interesting that I think you're seeing more policy action, if you like, at a kind of more local level. Mm. So, for example, Peterborough have a kind of a circular city approach. Mm-hmm. The GLA is doing some work on it. So the new London plan may well contain, I think it's a plan to contain something called a circular economy statement. Yes, right. So things are happening at a lower level. But obviously, again, it will only affect the projects that are built in those jurisdictions. So, you know, if you're not building in Peaceborough, if you're not building in London, all oh, right, well, none of it applies. So for me, I think there is a stronger role for government to play. And it's about expanding it from just talking about waste mm. to actually talking about materials. And the, um, you know, the government is in a very strong position here because, you know, government procures a lot, you know, whether that's civic buildings or local authority with its local development plans and so on. And... You know, as we've seen from the Netherlands, there is a lot that government institutions and delivery bodies can do to integrate circular economy thinking into their procurement approach. So that, that then drives the supply chain and the value chain servicing those government functions to incorporate those uh, circular economy aspects. And then you get that fulfilled in the contracts that follow. So there is, there is a sort of procurement leadership role that government at several levels can take in this approach. But say that even further you could argue that there's an obligation on the government to do something because every public procurement exercise in the built environment, every built asset that's built that generates waste, that's literally throwing away taxpayer money. Mm. So isn't there something the government should be doing about that? Isn't there a role for them to do there? 
We are starting to run out of time, but I just wanted to very, very quickly ask you, we've talked a lot about large organisations, big projects, but what can we do on an individual level? How can we all contribute to, to moving into this circular economy? Well, I think a lot of people are doing this already. They're, they're taking that concept of reuse and keeping products at their highest value for as long as they can. And you see that manifested in things like tools libraries, which are springing up, so people no longer perhaps need to buy um, Black & Decker drill to do a DIY. You end up only using that several times, maybe for a few minutes over its lifetime. What about having a centre where you go in and actually hire a few products for an annual subscription, and then they go back again? And that means that you don't end up owning the asset. The asset can be repaired and refurbished, by the owner of the library, so it's a service. And I think we're also seeing this in, in the high street as well, you know, second-hand and, and charity shops. A lot, a lot of people are starting to, you know, think about their own patterns of consumption and think about whether they can reuse, whether they can share with a neighbour, they can get that next pair of trousers from the, the local Oxfam or what have you instead. So we're starting to see a few people taking action. And Mark, do you have other thoughts as well? sort of take a very high-level philosophical view of it. You know, back in the Second World War, we had this whole make-do-and-mend campaign because of lack of resource availability and then we've gone you know economic boom has happened we've gone to this kind of disposable society but now there's sudden realization that oh actually all of this disposable society we've got isn't actually sustainable as in we can't carry on doing it and i think you're seeing that you know people are repairing things you know so i remember once i took my digital watch to get a new battery and uh, the guy was like oh yeah, you do realise the new battery will cost you more than a new watch. And that's just mad. Um, because there's nothing actually wrong with that device in any way whatsoever. It just needs a new battery. So, you know, I think, as Rob was saying, you know, people are going to second-hand clothes shops, that sort of stuff. I think there is sort of that mentality that is coming through. And I think it's promoted by a, a realisation that there is only one planet. Mm. And so we have, we have a finite <coughs> amount of resources left. And when they run out, that's it. Another thing that people are doing, coming back to that idea of carbon as a, as a proxy for efficiency and, and, and that kind of thing, well, quite, quite a few folk are, are starting to you know, go on a website and work out what their own carbon footprint is. And once you do that and you program in, you know, it's very straightforward, you know, how much you're buying of certain products and so on, you start to realise how much consumption drives up your carbon footprint. And that's another good way of, of getting a sort of personal awareness, you know, work out what your personal carbon footprint is, and then that can help you understand, you know, what the impact of your consumption is, and that can go for, you know, everyday items as well as special trips abroad. I would simplify it even further. Mm. So if, people, you know, if we think about th- personal things that people can do, but equally... This applies to the built environment as well. Before you, uh, you know, decide to buy something or you decide, oh, I need a new building, that sort of stuff, ask yourself the question, do I actually need this? I think that is an excellent point to end things today. Thank you very much to both of you, to Mark and to Robert. It's been a fascinating podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, Talking Infrastructure, then please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, goodbye.